0: Of the show, Jim Marty here from Denver, Colorado. We were surviving a very cold snowstorm. It's ten degrees here, and we got three or four inches of snow last night. Hard to believe it's still October. Um, I got Larry Michigan from Chicago. How you doing, Larry? Jim, I'm doing
1: just fine. Thank you. Yeah, we even got a little bit of snow here, and we're supposed to get some more tomorrow. We get. You're right. You blink your eyes, and summer's gone. Bye, oh, bye.
0: Yeah. Well, we can talk about during the show today because the The cold weather has wreaked havoc on the outdoor hemp crop this year. I can tell some stories about what happened to some of my farmer clients here in Colorado. But we're lucky enough to have a a hemp expert today. We have Joy Beckerman, and she's involved with several organizations. I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell us about the organizations that she works with and works on and is part of. Joy Beckerman, welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show.
2: It is such a pleasure to be here, and on so many levels, Larry and Jim. Thank you for having me. Sure.
0: So, Joy, go ahead and tell us about the organizations that you work with in the hemp world.
2: Well, certainly. I uh, am a diehard, perpetual advocate of the plant for some 30 years now, and, uh, and started out, by the way, having the first hemp store in the state of New York back in the early 90s, and then when that inaugural hemp bill passed in vermont in 1996 i was appointed to serve as secretary of the vermont hemp council and relocated there so moving forward i began a dual career in compliance and complex civil litigation along with hemp as i raised my children and up to the present i have a expert witness in legal consulting firm um, called hemp ace international i'm also very proud to be the part owner and senior advisor to colorado hemp works which is our nation's first post-prohibition hemp grain processing facility located right in Longmont, Colorado, where you are, Jim. I'm also proud to be the regulatory officer and industry liaison for Elixinol, a Colorado-based hemp CBD, hemp extract company, with products in over 40 countries. And then on my pro bono nonprofit organization that I serve, which is actually where the bulk of my time goes, I'm the president of the Hemp Industries Association, Founded in 1994, our nation's most established hemp trade association, currently serving over 1,700 members and growing every month. As well as vice president of the U.S. Hemp Authority, which created the first third-party independent verified certification program for folks in the hemp dietary supplement, food, and cosmetic space. And finally, executive vice president to the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. Which is a 501c4 advocacy organization doing some tremendous work at the federal level and then at state and local levels as well as confusion pops up and legislation and rulemaking will take through those processes
0: excellent wow well it sounds like you're very busy with all that going on and yes i look forward to meeting up with you in person the next time you're in Longmont.
2: i'm pretty excited
0: about it didn't
2: realize that's where you were based so much happening in longmont and what a great service you are providing these accounting services to many hemp companies that are out there, and farmers. Our heroes are those farmers.
0: Right. Well, hemp sort of came to us indirectly um, because we do a lot of tax returns for the high THC cousin of hemp, CTHC-based cannabis. So that's what got us going in the cannabis world, signing their tax returns. And the hemp industry today just reminds me so much of where the marijuana industry was 10 years ago. You know, some of your older hemp companies, for the most part, there are exceptions, for the most part, they're only two or three years old and they're still trying to find their way, they're trying to form their capital, they're trying to get their business plans up and running. And as I said, we've had some weather here in Colorado. So right now, as we sit here, there are hemp plants lying in fields covered with snow that our farmer clients are hoping that they can get some value out of uh, extracting them. But that's questionable. One of my clients, farmers, while the plants were lying in his field, the wind came up and just carried them away. He lost about half his crop to the wind. So, uh, Larry, I think it's like uh, one of our favorite bands says, that if the thunder doesn't get you, that the lightning will. Uh, because uh, it always uh, you know, it out there. the snow didn't get it, it seems like the wind did.
2: And then there's always cold rain and snow <laughs>
0: you have a very strong grateful dead connection to hemp can you tell us about that
2: oh indeed indeed and, and by the way i was just in colorado and we had to do a photo shoot because there's a, a magazine hemp growers magazine that's doing an inaugural issue and people were harvesting so quickly because those freezes those first freezing temperatures came uh, not last week but the week prior as you know and oh my goodness fields that were available to me all of a sudden were not available for this photo shoot because the harvest was happening so quickly, and I'm still hoping that those farmers are going to be able to salvage any hemp that was left in the field, because we know it really degrades cannabinoids after multiple freezes and sitting in snow. But let's hope for the best. And when we get that infrastructure for processing that stock, that'll that'd be excellent, too. There's clearly some redding going on. Well, how the Grateful Dead, the grateful dead has influenced my life in so many directions, but clearly my life's purpose, my life's work, and I think I can safely say that as I'm about to turn 50 in January, is hemp. Is the cannabis plant, and in particular, and I was able to keep up with both movements for many, many moons. I also sat on the National Board of Directors for Normal as well, but it's full court breath, all hemp, all the time, 24-7 in my life now that we've moved forward so swiftly here on the federal level. And I discovered hemp at a dead show. In 1990, at Foxborough, Massachusetts, actually in the spring. That was a few years after the first edition of The Emperor's No Course, which is a book that you gentlemen are no doubt familiar with, written by Jack Carrer, may he rest in peace, and edited by Chris Conrad, a prolific cannabis activist who's still doing tremendous work today with his wife, Mickey Norris, equally prolific activist, and... We didn't have the internet or, let the word processing that then. There was exacto tape and, and border tape, I should say, and exacto knives and photocopies. And and as Jack so eloquently put it during his days planet with us here, you know, the government didn't just remove the plant from our consciousness and our field of awareness. They endeavored to remove all knowledge of the plant from our consciousness and our field of awareness. And so it's fun the information from USDA records, from museums, from National Archives, uh, and, and even the germplasm seed bank, right? And now the USDA just in the last couple months is giving $500,000 grants to Cornell University to restart that hemp germplasm seed bank. But sign Jack knew and the came out in California and Oregon knew that somewhere we had this very rich history of hemp in the United States, in the world, and that it, evidence of it must surely exist somewhere. And they scoured and scoured our nation's archives and, and got the information and published that book. And, and in any event, it was a one-page flyer, an excerpt from the book, The Wears No Clothes, that was handed to me at that Dr. Dead Show that, that spring in 1990, and that information... Affected me on a cellular level and basically changed the trajectory of my life, the awareness of it, because I thought that we, (laughs) there was no solution, that we were basically going to kill each other and the planet, but that we should practice peace of the music on our way to utter destruction. And when I discovered that we had a vessel here, a vehicle, a way to to bring the world together on a planetary and biospheric and soil ecology level, an industrial level, as well as a spiritual level and a public health level, and that the government had criminalized that past, that we had a past, and it was criminalized. That sort of was a convergence of a sense of justice and planetary healing that came together in a way that that changed me forever. At that show, that's it.
0: Wow. Interesting. <laughs> what they opened with? Yeah. What was the
2: I gotta get a dead base out for that one. I really only remember my very first show open It's been a while and so many facts since then. But my very first live show was Shakedown Street Boys. It was Shakedown Street, Hartford, Connecticut, an unannounced show. Yeah, man, did I love it. But I don't remember the that I need a dead base for that.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. One of my very first shows, my second show. Was UMass Amherst? They played the football stadium for our spring concert, May twelfth, nineteen seventy nine. We got a jack and we, we would... a second foot terrapin, and it being a Saturday, they hmm. closed it one more Saturday night. And I still have our student newspaper with all the pictures from that show. Very cool. Yeah, amazing,
2: amazing. You were jamming out, and I was nine years old. <laughs>
1: well you know that's the thing that now right when you go to grateful dead shows the age is 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 not really a factor and one of the things i like about it is being in my mid to late 50s i can still go to dead shows Dead in company and i'm far from the oldest person in the place and i'm far from the youngest person in the place so i kind of like the way i fit right in the
0: middle there yes i agree with that i'm in my 60s and i'm still enjoying fish and grateful dead shows very much and there he's learned it too. So
1: Les is going to turn eighty in March, and he's playing three-hour concerts. No Hopefully, mm-hmm.
0: so well. This is all very interesting. Yeah, we don't think that hemp has some of the same issues of marijuana. But Larry, what, do you have any comments on that? Well,
1: yeah. I, here's here's my question, Joy, and, and I'm you know somebody who clearly has spent so much time in the hemp field. I'm I'm hoping that you know we can start to shed a little light on this. Why is it so difficult? For people to comprehend exactly on what's going on with the 2018 farm bill and the fact that hemp is legal i mean i'm sure you've heard the stories about tanker trucks with hemp oil getting pulled over in idaho i had a client here in illinois who had a, pack- a package confiscated by the chicago police department that had been sent in from washington state with about ten thousand dollars worth of cd products we finally got it back, but my client had you know, incur a lot of cost and time and expense to get it. And the conversations that I had with the Chicago Police Department and with the Idaho State Police could have come right out of the twilight zone. And it's just you know so strange that people say, oh, well, we don't know what it is. We think it might be marijuana. We'll just test it? Well, yeah, we tested it, and it came back time for THC. So it's, I do if you understand what the law says about THC and how much it can be in it. And, and nobody seems to know anything they all what's your thoughts on that
2: a, there are a few things going on you know one is idaho that was a hemp oil that was raw biomass you know that's straight up hemp and that still has not been returned yeah. yet and that's be right. to the newest right although it's going to the united states court of appeals and certainly on may 28th the general counsel to the united states department of agriculture was an incredibly favorable legal opinion just on the effect of the farm bill in general and what that means for hemp as an agricultural commodity and thank the Idaho federal judge in that legal opinion as to, you know, completely violating the, the, the law, federal law, in terms of there being no interference for, by the states or the tribes for the interstate transport of hemp. But let's unpack right. for a moment, and then let's unpack for a moment, you know, what the, the true amendments to the Controlled Substances Act. that place in the 2018 Farm Bill, and two things happened, and by the way, and then the result of that is what you're seeing is just, this, this is the unfolding of the revolution where people are so, it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome. There are folks even in the movement right. that somehow, it's not that they don't want to believe that we've been removed, they just can hardly wrap their heads around it, yet here we are liberated in the broad light of day right. with all of America's other agricultural commodities, and now, now we're defined, we meaning him are defined in the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946, which is where all agricultural commodities must be defined in the same way that all controlled substances must be defined in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So I'm that for a second. The definition of marijuana, we have suffered with that definition since 1937 because it was actually defined in the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act and the Nixon administration in 1970 didn't do a thing to alter that definition, not a single piece of punctuation or a word or an indefinite article. They simply adopted it wholesale, swapped it into the 1970 Controlled Substances Act. Now, in the 2018 Farm Bill, they amended the Controlled Substances Act, and this was enacted on January 1 of 2019, and I... Do a lot of credit-bearing continuing legal education seminars. I generally am the, the token hemp credit amongst the you know the other eight um, marijuana credits in these large seminars, and I'm often the first one after eight wonderful marijuana attorneys have presented. I'm the one saying, "Gee, does anybody know or realize that the definition of marijuana was amended on January one, two thousand and nineteen, for the first time in eighty-one years, and no one has told them that yet?" But that has happened. Right. And it was amended so that now there's a section A and B. We didn't used to have a section A and B. And so now there's a B section. Such term does not include. And now instead of going right into the mature stocks of such plant, now it says such term does not include hemp as defined by the agricultural marketing, as defined in section 297A. So we were removed in that sense. And on top of it, and, and by the way, the USDA general counsel even opines in that May 28th legal opinion saying, oh, you know, if you're waiting, if some folks say that, oh, there needs to be another act of legislation in order for it to be removed, no. The act of legislation happened in the 2018 Farm Bill, amended the Controlled Substances Act. Another thing doesn't need to happen for that to occur. Another folks say, well, it doesn't, it isn't really amended until the DEA somehow magically posted on their website. And the USDA general counsel addresses that head on and says, actually, the Controlled Substances Act doesn't require the DEA to update its website. It says that they have a duty to update the schedule periodically. And every six months or so, as the DEA sees fit, they go ahead and do that. But it's not, it doesn't mean that it's not official until the DEA updates something on their website. It was enacted on January 1, 2019. It's the law of the frickin' land. And so the last piece that I will sort of unfold for you there is that it did something else that was surprising, and a lot of people didn't realize this until the USDA's legal opinion came out. It also amended tetrahydrocannabinols in the Controlled Substances Act. So it just used you in the list, just list this word under marijuana and all of these things in Schedule One. When you get to the key, it said tetrahydrocannabinol. Period. Just the word. Now it says tetrahydrocannabinol, except tetrahydrocannabinol derived from hemp as defined in Section 297A of the Controlled Substances Act, which would lead you then with these confiscations to really question, well, my, for the love of God, so it tested positive for THC. That's part of the problem is that they're doing these sort of roadside tests. If there's any THC in it all, it's going to test positive. It's not going to say how much. Um, But even THC derived from hemp has been removed from the Controlled Substances Act. And I will wrap it up just by saying, Senator Mitch McConnell, and as I often say on my hemp baron show, and as I speak throughout the country, you may have 99 problems with Mitch McConnell, but hemp ain't one, you know, has recognizing that this is a massive problem with law enforcement and boots on the ground saying, do you really expect us to tell the difference? How are we going to tell the difference? And, and test our, and methodology, all of these analytical methods are all over the map. So in an appropriations bill, it hasn't passed yet. Is the, the bill It's just making its way through the sausage-making progress of legislation at, at the federal level. But it's directing the DEA to come up with a freaking test that boosts on the ground law enforcement and other officials, whether it's state, local, or municipal on some level, can, can tell is this hemp or is this marijuana? Because we're going to keep having these problems. And it's also great because it's forcing sort of the feds to really start to move forward with the legalization of marijuana because it's going to be a tar-baby situation. We need to liberate this plant and move forward with commerce.
0: Right, because right. I think that you mentioned, Joy, all hemp products have some low-level THC in them, correct?
2: Not all of them, um, but certainly some of them. And when we get into the extract, that's where we're really starting to talk about it. Certainly fiber and grain varieties, we have certified pedigree seeds around the world, and we need to bring our own American feral seeds into, you know, these unique distinct stable varieties that become, because it's a part of agriculture to have certified pedigree seeds. We don't just grow plants and then hope somebody's going to buy whatever the heck came out of the soil at the end. A manufacturer generally and a farmer are generally going to be in a contract prior to those seeds being put in the ground and it isn't because they're guessing about what's going to come up when it comes to fiber, when it comes to grain. It's very specific varieties that, again, are stable and that are going to produce the desired uh, nutritional profile. Again, if we're talking about that nutrient-dense seed for hemp food products with a specific protein content, a specific size of the seed, specific omega-3 to 6 ratio, all of those things. So we don't have that, though. For, and the THC is bred very, very far down in those plants. And the seed itself is not a source of cannabinoids, nor is the mature stock. The only time that would happen is, is a trichome, so a resin that adheres to the surface of the hemp stock, but that all comes out in processing for fiber, and trichomes or resin that adheres to the surface of the cannabis seed. And having said that, we generally de-hull the seed, so we take the shell off and then mark it or move forward. Uh, with that nutty white heart in the beginning. But anyway, very low, low levels, lots of hemp products. have absolutely no THC in them whatsoever, but certainly CBD, which is helping to drive awareness of all of the many uses of hemp, and which is driving the revenue to really create an infrastructure to process these other more valuable parts of the plant, you know, not necessarily more valuable to public health, but more valuable to industry. The real trillion-dollar industries here are outside of of extract, which is where we are running into these THC issues, the presence of THC, though still not greater than 0.3% THC, which is a legal limit. But those other trillion-dollar industries are, you know, food, human and animal food, body care, paper, textiles, building materials, biocomposites, bioplastics, industrial sealants and coatings, energy storage, fuel, nanotechnology, biomedical applications. I mean, cannabis is here to serve all of humanity's needs, and and hemp certainly does that. But the extract is where there's an issue. In fact, Alistonall and other industry leaders in the hemp CBD and hemp extract space have begun to add to their labeling. You know, this meat this product meets the federal requirements for hemp. However, consumption may be flagged by some drug tests because it's important for folks to know who are taking these full spectrum hemp extract products and who have come to rely on them for any number of symptoms, temporary or otherwise in their lives, if they are dealing with a custody battle or, you know, probation, parole-type situations or employment issues, they do need to be made aware that, again, because the presence of THC tests positive, that it's possible that even though they have very, very low, basically hardly detectable limits of THC in in their systems, it could, in fact, test positive for THC. Really be... See, just we all need to get over it. You know, we're dealing with going from hysterical prohibition into truth and common sense, and this is the netherworld that we're dealing with right now. This is how yeah, human unconsciousness and revolutions unfold. And so, you know, the next step here is to get everybody okay with THC, which has been so demonized, and yet it is arguably the most uh, valuable, and by that I mean in terms of medical benefit and psychological benefit compounding the plant. We just need more research and thanks of Prohibition, we've definitely been putting a damper on research for the last eighty one years. But we're getting there. The plant is reemerging in a big way.
1: Well I think that what you just said, you know, is really not only right on the mark, very important for for people to know and understand. And and you know one thing I I want to make sure that people know out there is the important role that HIA plays a couple of years ago, right, when the DEA swept in with their proposed rules for hemp and for its uh, extracts, and certainly looked like they were trying to figure out a way to close the loophole by saying that somehow it was a controlled substance. Uh, And I know that the HIA led the way, in a legal action brought in the Ninth Circuit actually by the whole Squad group. Um, And maybe you could tell us about that a little bit, because it really, I think it really has a direct line between that court ruling and the 2018 farm bill.
2: No, indeed, and and thank you so much for bringing it up. And what Heroes uh, Hoban Law Group is to have taken that case on, and and Patrick who who is also a counsel, he's based in San Francisco, I yeah, believe, Francisco. but he's also a yeah. counsel with yeah, yes, yeah, so he was a counsel and a part of that legal team with Bob Hogan and Derek Grass. And and keep in mind that was very important to the HIA because Patrick has been our litigator since the early 2000s. And so uh, to see him align himself with Hoban Logos was just fantastic because just Hoban is just heroes in this space of so many levels in all all forms of candidates.
1: That's an all-star lineup of uh, people there from, from the Hoban group. The three people who you just mentioned, Bob Hoban, Garrett Graff, Patrick Dagen, I suspect know as much about him, you know, throwing you in the group maybe just to make it safe as anybody else in the country. And you're right, they they have a long history of of working and defending uh, hemp rights and doing it so it really worked out to be a good combination because you guys ultimately although the, the underlying result was talked out on a, on a procedural technicality you got some good comments from the ninth circuit that really established the legitimacy of industrial hemp
2: yes and and i boy, and that was in fact the name of the 2014 Farm Bill amendment was the legitimacy of industrial hemp research so i love how you tied that up so i just want to elaborate on that for a moment and say Going back to Patrick and the HIA and and our legacy history of taking on the DBA in October of 2001, gentlemen, we had started to gain a little bit of traction here in the United States with the hemp seed oil industry. So in 1997, Dr. Bronner, David and Michael Bronner inherited Dr. Bronner's soap. They graduated respectively from Harvard and Yale, began to add hemp seed oil into their soap in California. Nutiva, a hemp seed company, and now they also do chia seeds and various other products and now even extracts, they had started to gain traction. And so the DEA sees this happening in 2001, and out of a clear blue sky, on October 7th of that year, they put forth this interim rule to make sterilized hemp seeds and cold-pressed hemp seed oil meant for human consumption to be Schedule One controlled substances. And so the HIA immediately re- reacted, along with some of these other names plaintiffs, and, and I've got to just get it out there because I, I think it's so fantastic, that the corporate name for Dr. Bronner's soap isn't actually Dr. Bronner's soap. They DBA Dr. Bronner's soap. They do business as Dr. Bronner's soap. Their, their corporate name is All One God Faith, Inc. This matter was the Hemp Industries Association, All One God-Faith Inc., New Siva, Roots Hemp Foods, Ohio Hempery, and a few other plaintiffs, versus the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. And that was before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We won twice, because essentially they came, they couldn't take no or you're you know, denied for an answer. So the DEA came back again, and so we have what we call Hemp One and Hemp Two, our orders from 2003 and 2004, with the circuit those judges saying no the architects of the definition of marijuana understood that there was at least some chc trace non-detectable amounts in these parts of the plant and yet they made exceptions for them they made an exception for the exception so even the sterilized seeds and the mature stock in our in our prior definition that we were suffering under did also say in a parenthetical except the resins they're pumped so, they made it clear that you couldn't extract the resin from the mature stock and you couldn't extract the resin from the brass plant material around the seeds, but you could access the sterilized seeds and you could access the stock. And a side note, I don't want to go on too many tangents here, but side note, remember I told you at the beginning of the show that the definition from the 1970 Marijuana Tax Act was 1937 Marijuana Tax Act was adopted in 1970. So, understand the sophistication of the architects of that definition of marijuana way back in 1937, they knew that the goodies were in the resins, that the goodies were in the trichomes. They knew that the goodies were the cannabinoids and they wrote the definition to make that clear, that whether you were looking at marijuana, whether you were looking at the exception for hemp, the resins were off limits. So in any event, we won those cases and Patrick uh, represented us in those cases. Then in December of 2016, some two and a half years after the Farm Bill from 2014 is signed by the Obama administration. We've got multiple acres, thousands of acres growing in the United States in 2016. We grew just under 10,000 acres that year in our country. And out of a clear blue sky, the DEA finalizes their <laughs> marijuana extract rule, which had then, in a proposed state, since July of 2011, and in fact, that was one of the legal arguments that, that Hogan did such a tremendous job both both in case law and in arguing it, orally and in writing. There is case law yeah. that, that a proposed rule can't sit in some stagnant place for five years, but, you know, just fascinating stuff. In the end, it's true, we lost the marijuana extract case in terms of the petition. Um, because we hadn't filed uh, a public comment way back in 2011 when it was a proposed rule far before the 2014 Farm Bill, which created a definition for hemp for the first time in U.S. history and and distinguished it from marijuana, and I'll use a Bob Hoban term, and created a seismic shift in cannabis policy throughout the United States. I borrow that term from him all the time. Um, But due to that uh, amicus brief and a wonderful activist and, and hemp extract. A company, CNX Botanicals, out of Sparks, uh, Nevada. That's an incredible man named Mike Perry. He with his own money. He got some, actually. I can't say that some of the large companies, uh, Isodial, probably CD Sciences, um, donated five thousand each or so to help get this amicus brief written. Amicus being Latin for friend of the court. Where we had twenty-nine federal legislators who helped draft and and. Support the 2014 fundo actually filed a brief on behalf of the hia and it in that marijuana extract matter and said the dea is abusing their authority the dea is implementing the law in the exact opposite manner than it was legislatively intended to be um we intended for all parts of the plant the resins the extracts the derivatives the flowering tops and leaves all of it to be liberated and cannot be subject to the controlled substances act and uh and in fact the justices did listen to that and on page four of this memorandum they didn't want to make it a public opinion but on page four of the memorandum that the justices filed uh they said is, is that essentially the marijuana extract rule um does not violate uh the the act meaning the farm bill because of the language in the Farm Bill that says notwithstanding the Controlled Substances Act, um, which those legislative heroes and heroines said uh, was intentional. And so essentially, for the listeners, we've got these three beautiful branches of government. We live in a tremendous country, despite everything you see on the news all day and despite the the tearing down and degradation attempts of this culture and this incredible fiber that we're seeing with the Trump administration, we have a wonderful system here. And we have a legislative branch. We have an executive branch and we have a judicial branch. And when it came to the 2014 Farm Bill, that was the legislative branch putting forth their intent. Then we had the DEA, now in our rearview mirror, but for those four and a half crazy years, they certainly were not. They are the executive branch. They're then tasked with implementing the law. And when we, when it became the feds versus the feds, which is essentially what we were dealing with, the legislative branch versus the executive branch, it then took the stakeholders, the HIA, and plaintiffs to bring it before the judicial branch to work it out. And Holman Lodge did that in such a beautiful way for us.
1: Well, good. Thank you. Yeah, that's a wonderful recap. But all it was a, a very big moment tonight. And I, I think you've covered it all really well. You've kind of pointed out some of those issues, right? I mean, uh, look, I don't have anything personally against the DEA. they put all these but certainly, uh, you know, they've gone so far afield, that it was necessary for Congress to come in and pass a, a separate piece of legislation, Warbler bar to put the reins on the DEA and tell them, "Slow down, guys. You can't be running around going in and interfering with all of these legitimate programs." But maybe we owe them a little bit of uh, a debt of gratitude here because as a result of their overreach, uh, they helped us establish this important point of luck.
0: Very good. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. I've learned a lot on this phone call, and it does seem that um, we don't know what we have here, and we're just uh, still unwrapping all all these changes and trying to figure out what they mean. Well, I see we're coming to the end of our time slot. Joy, thank you very much. That was very enlightening. So Joy, do you like Dead and Company? Do you get to Dead and Company shows? Do you get to fish shows?
2: Not as many Dead and Company shows as I would like to. I of course when they when they first reemerged and we had fairly well tour and so on and so forth, I got to all of those. Um, but I have to say, as much as I miss the boys and oh do I miss the community, um, hemp is hemp is really full court press and I just travel all the time now. So unfortunately um, that the needs of the revolution are, for the first time in my life, in the last year or so, eclipsing uh, the main priority, which used to be, it was it's a dead show, nothing can happen, I'm going to that show, and, and now hemp is, is eclipsing that, and I do need to see more. I'm, I'm thrilled to live in upstate New York again, where we have tons of dead cover bands. Believe it or not, in Seattle for 21 sure. years, the Pacific Northwest is not repeat, with dead cover bands, but New York is full of them. And so I, I at least get my community and, and my old friends that I used to tour with, they're still here. So I still get to see them, it's great.
0: Yep, I heard that. That's a lot of fun. There's so many Grateful Dead tribute bands, we call them, that they actually have Grateful Dead tribute band festivals. True. Yes,
1: True. so lucky. That's no, a lot of fun. Joy, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Really, really fascinating information and presented on a level that I think people really need to hear. Uh, because we at the Holden Law Group do see this as a c- continuing problem where people just don't understand the law. They don't know what rights they have. The police don't know what rights are to enforce or not enforce. And it's through groups like yours and the efforts that you make to help educate the public that we eventually get to where we need to be. A
2: well, shared responsibility. Thank you for doing it with us. And, and thank you for the great job these gentlemen do on the show. So much fun. Thanks for having me today.
0: Very Absolutely. good. Okay, well, for all of us at the... Uh... Grateful Dead Cannabis Show uh, over and out and we'll talk to you again soon.